Amen. So my hope is that by the end of the sermon, you will be enjoying the gift of God's Holy Spirit to you. That's my hope, and we'll, we'll get there. If you're just joining us for the first time, perhaps you're visiting or uh, perhaps you've been in and out, let me just share with you where we've been. We're studying the book of Galatians, and today we're arriving at the passage that Rich read for us. We're arriving at chapter 3. What have we seen leading up to this point so that we've got a good picture of the book? Well, what we've seen is Paul really admonishing churches in this region of, called Galatia. Uh, he's admonishing them, rebuking them for their spiritual drift. You see, Paul came and planted these churches in the region of Galatia. He preached the forgiveness of sins. He preached that Christ was given for their sins. He taught them the message of the gospel, that they could only be forgiven and brought into a relationship with God through Jesus alone. They embraced that message. The region of Galatia was dotted with churches because they believed that message of uh, salvation or the forgiveness of sins by believing in Jesus alone. However, not long after Paul had planted these little churches, false teachers came into the region teaching another message of how one can be accepted by God. Their message of being accepted by God was like a pie. There was a slice, even a major slice to this pie that said, believe in Jesus. However, there were other slices to their message, other slices of the pie that you had to receive in order to be accepted by God. And these individuals were Jewish teachers who looked back on their heritage of Judaism and said, here's how the people of God were characterized. They were characterized by the act or the physical mark of circumcision in the Old Testament. They were characterized by observing certain days. They were characterized by eating certain foods and abstaining from certain foods. So what they were doing was they were appealing to the works of the law and saying, yes, Jesus is the Savior, and yet you need these other slices of the pie. So their message of salvation was different from Paul's. Paul's message is, here's the pie, and it's Jesus alone. Their message is, here's a few slices, take them all, Jesus and. Today, I would say that most, if not all of us in this room, have never been approached by someone teaching that particular message of circumcision, food, and observing certain days. So, you might be a visitor here, or you may have been with us for the past few weeks, and you might be saying something like, man, we're kind of missing the mark each Sunday because that is not relevant anymore, at least not in this area. The principle that is taught here in Galatians is timeless. The truth that Paul is teaching the Galatians is that God grants you forgiveness of sins on the basis of faith, not faith and works. So what's common for us to hear today from people at work or extended family members or at hopeful talks at funerals 
include slices, other slices of the pie. Let me give you an example. You might hear someone say, my grandma was a pretty good person all of her life. I'm sure God has got a place for her up yonder because she was such a sweet old lady. Do you hear the other slices coming in? She was a pretty good old lady. Not the old part, but the good part. (laughs) Or someone whom you've talked to and says, I've been trying to do the right thing all my life. I hope I've done enough for God to let me in those pearly gates. Do you hear that in regular Western kind of Christianese parlance culture? Or to clean it up, there are doctrinal statements that use phrases like this. Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to the life in the spirit. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ. That's a doctrinal statement that says the work of baptism is the means by which you become a member of Christ. So whether it's informal, grandma, hope she was a good enough lady, or formal doctrinal statements that speak about works or acts that you do in order to become members of Christ, this is very prevalent around us all the time. So with its doctrine, God's word is timeless. Galatians addresses not just the theological errors in the first century, but Galatians addresses every other teaching that holds to a saving relationship with God that comes to someone on the basis of believing in Jesus and the acts of good works. Galatians is timeless. It corrects us and says, no, there's only one piece of the pie, belief in Jesus alone. The other pieces, whether it was the first century or whether it's this century, should be rejected. Now, the key verse, the key doctrinal verse up to this point perhaps for the whole book, is Galatians 2, verse 16. This is where Paul says, we know that a person is justified, okay, declared righteous, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You hear the other slices in there. You hear Jesus, and you hear the other slices. And Paul is saying, look, for me to be justified, for you to be justified, is only going to happen by or through belief in Jesus. So last week we talked about justification. Justification means to be declared righteous. So this week, I hope to visit a man who has sinned, and his sin has legal consequences, and there's a good chance that he is going to prison for several years. The judge looks at him, and the judge leans over the bench and says, you're guilty. So that is condemnation, where the, where the declaration is, you're guilty. You have to be 
punished or hold to the consequences or receive the consequences for your actions. Justification in this sense can look at the individual and from God's perspective, God knows each one of us. He knows that we're not pure as the driven snow. He knows that we have sin in our lives. That's why Jesus came. And yet he can look at us and know or say, by the faith that you placed in Jesus Christ, I now declare you to be righteous. The gift of Christ has been received upon your life and you're being declared justified not by the other slices of the pie that you've done, not by works that you've done, but by Galatians 2.16, your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. Now, God is giving us that gift. We know that that gift is given to us on the basis of faith. And so what Paul does is he takes this doctrine of justification, this gift of salvation that we have, and he starts turning it like, if you will, like a diamond. He says, now let's start looking at different facets of this gift that God has been given to you. Well, part of that is Christ, and we can look at Christ, and he's going to come up, in, especially in chapter 3, the later part of chapter 3. But what he wants us to look at really is this practice of faith. So in verses 1 through 5, verses 1 through 6, because it really ends with 6, what we're looking at is how God has used faith in your life in conjunction with the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so Paul is dissecting the error from another perspective. He's going to show us now that faith is essential. How did your spiritual life begin? By works of the law? No, but by faith. And the way that he gets to that is by asking us several compelling questions here. So verse 1, we're just going to walk through these questions, and these will be more or less your outline for this morning. Question 1 is this, are you bewitched? Are you bewitched? Look at verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, that word foolish has the idea of mindless. You, you've lost your mind. The word in Greek is the word for mind or thought or thinking. And then it has the A in front of it. You know, like theism means God. And then the A in front of it means atheism. This is the word mind with the letter A in front of it. Like you've lost your mind. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Okay, so this question is somewhat of an introspective question. Who has bewitched you? Um, who has cast you under a spell here so that you are no longer able or thinking clearly? You've lost your mind. I don't think Paul is talking about like a sorcerer coming along and having some sort of chant or incantation and people are like 
blinded by this spell. He's talking about the deep deceit that they are under. He says, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before their eyes. There's two possibilities for what this might mean. It's possible as you look at Jerusalem and head out from Jerusalem, past Galatia on the other side of this is a region called Phrygia. And in Acts 2 at Pentecost, just several weeks after Jesus was crucified on the cross, it says that people from as far as Phrygia, just past Galatia, had come down to Jerusalem and were worshiping. It's possible that individuals in these Galatian churches were in Jerusalem and they saw Jesus Christ being crucified. It's possible that Paul, on the other hand, might be saying to them, I have given you a picture And a picture is worth a thousand words. I have given you thousands of words in my preaching and teaching to you that has held Jesus Christ up. And in your minds, you have been able to know that Christ was was publicly crucified. Whether you were there physically or whether you come to believe it and see it through the words that I have spoken to you, you know that Christ was crucified. But the deceit that they are falling for is devaluing Christ's death. The fact that Paul tells them that they have been bewitched is a reminder for us today that Christians who believe and hold fast to the death and resurrection of Christ are not the bewitched ones. We're not the ones that are grasping like living in this empty faith or truth deniers living in a fairy tale. Like, let me just say that again. There's an, to put it bluntly, lots of people think we're crazy for holding fast to Christ's death, right? And his resurrection. They think that that's nuts. And what Paul is saying is, no, you're not the bewitched ones. You're not the mindless ones. The ones who would deny that Christ died and rose again Like, they're actually the ones who are under the spell. They are the ones who are actually deceived. So are are you bewitched, he asks, looking inward. Question number two. And we're going to see how these questions link together. Question number two, how did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive the Spirit? He says in verse two, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, here you see him start to talk about the Spirit, but he was just talking about Christ being crucified on the cross. So what's the connection here? Paul knows that when one lays hold of Christ crucified and risen again, verse one, he knows And assumes that we know that when one lays hold and believes, God gives you the person of the Spirit to indwell you. You lay hold of Christ, you are given the Spirit to indwell you. Romans 5, verse 5 says this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So his question is this. You've believed Christ. You've received the spirit. Did you receive the spirit by or through the means of doing works or 
Think back to when you trusted Christ. Did you receive the Spirit simply by believing Christ? And it's obviously a rhetorical question because as they look backwards, they can see, wait a second, we believed Christ. We believed your message, Paul. We realized that Christ alone is our gift of salvation. And when we received him, the Savior indwelt us. The same for you. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, an amazing reality that we probably neglect too much is that the Spirit of God took up residence in your life. A change began to occur because you have God's love in your life. Through the Spirit, God began giving you new desires. He began giving you new appetites. And those new appetites are in conflict with the old appetites. He convicts us of sin in new ways. He causes us to love others in ways that shadow the love of Christ. What God does in our life is he puts his spirit and it's as though his desires start to grow in our lives. So maybe you were on your way to work this last week and listening to Moody Radio you may have heard Perry talking to a man whose Muslim mom came to believe in Jesus Christ as her Savior. And after she believed, there was an incredible thirst, an incredible appetite in this woman for God's word. He said that when she came to believe in Jesus Christ as her Savior, she locked herself in the bedroom for a week and read the Bible nonstop because she had new desires and this was all new truth and new life for her. So you may have been saved later in life. Um, we all have different testimonies of when God saved us. But what God was doing is whether you were very young or whether you were an adult, God was giving you his spirit in that moment on the basis of your faith. And Paul is asking you this question did you receive the Spirit when you were doing works of the law? No. You received the Spirit, obviously, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Third question. This one is a logical question. How are you growing spiritually now? How are you growing spiritually? So he says here in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Returns to that word again. Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this question builds on the previous one. You received the Spirit of God who indwelt you. He began to give you good desires, and you remembered back when you were saved that God was doing a work on the inside of you. You remember when he began turning you away from sins that you used to just, just drive in and, and love and participate in. And now the Spirit starts doing this new work called sanctification in your life. He starts exposing sin that is there, and he starts giving you a desire to put it to death. There's a conflict that is taking place there. So you can look at it as a new person moving into a house, and we'll call this house a dirty old house. This old house, if some of you like that show. It's an old house, and now you're moving in. The new buyer moves into this old dark house and begins cleaning up the space one room at a time. And when the spirit comes into your life, he begins doing a work in your life like one place at a time. God saves you. You don't become an angel. 
We're never angels. We're not glorified until we're brought into the eternal state. It's that God is constantly doing a work in our lives. Romans 8 verse 14 says this, by the Spirit who now indwells you, you start putting to death the deeds of the body. And you start seeing, man, there are parts of my life that are sinful. I didn't see that as sin before, but now I see it as sin. So let me just illustrate this. This last week, one of my projects, to-do projects, has been to put a door in downstairs where the little guest bedroom is because previously there was one of those plastic accordion curtains that went across the doorway and into the laundry room. And when family or people stay down in that bedroom, it's just kind of tacky. So for 16 years since we've moved in, there's been this accordion door that slides over and it's just kind of not that great of a situation. So I go out, I buy a door. I buy the door, bring it home on Monday. It has to be fit into the smaller door frame. I botched the door. Saw Arlen over there. That was the botched door. I just cut it up too bad and had to go over to Home Depot. Now here's another door. So strike two, strike one on to strike two. I get this new door in, cut it down to size, and I go to put it in yesterday afternoon, and the hinges are on, and it's on one side, and I go to close the door, and on the hinge side, there's a pretty clean, consistent gap. But on the other side where the handle is, here's the door, and I'm going to exaggerate, but here's how the door frame looks. It looks like this. <laughs> there's this gap that goes down by the door. And so I'm thinking, oh, I can cover that up. That's why you have door trim on the inside of the door where it comes up against it. So I, I put the trim around, okay? And there's still a gap between the door and that trim. For 16 years, this finished off little door that had the curtain sliding across, for 16 years, I never looked at it and thought, man, that thing is slanted like that. I stepped back last night and I, yeah, that thing is slanted like that. It's got all kinds, it's wacky. Never noticed it. 16 years. All right. I shared all that, which was way too long of a story. But I share that to say, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, he starts exposing things year one. He starts doing a work in your life. And, and you begin to see, yeah, that's very clear sin. Put that to death by the work of the Spirit. You get to year 16 in your life or so, and God keeps working on you. It's like he moves into the house and he says, we're going to go down to the basement and start looking at more and more of what's going on in your heart. Have you seen that for the last 16 years? Nope. Haven't seen it for 16 years. That kind of pride and that kind of selfishness and that kind of arrogance going on. The way that I was acting was very selfish and prideful and arrogant. Yep, that's the Spirit of God in your life this week or this month or this year when you look back and you say, I never saw that. That's the work of the Spirit. And then it's like he goes up into the attic and starts working on your mind. And you used to have certain thought patterns. And for 16 years or for 20 years or for 40 years after you had been saved, the Spirit is still airing out the attic. 
helping you think more clearly. And you look back and you say, five years ago, I never would have seen that pattern of thinking as sin. But now I can see the way that I've been thinking about people, the way that I've been thinking about my pursuits, the way that I've been thinking about myself, man, I can see it's all tainted by sin. And so this is what the Spirit of God does. And Paul is asking you the question, did you get to that point where you recognize sin and the Spirit was helping you put it to death? Did you get to that point on the basis of works? Or did you get to that point because you accepted Christ by faith and he started doing a work in your life by the Spirit? And the answer is obvious. It was God all along doing this work because simply I accepted Christ by faith and he's doing this work of sanctification. The reason why you and I see any victory over any sin in our lives or the reason why we would see those, even the the opposite, those moments where our affections and our desires for God are growing And that's one of those things that happen. You're like, man, I appreciate God in a whole new way these last two years or this last year or this last segment of my life than I did in the previous segment. The reason why is because the Spirit is at work to do that in you. It's all because of the Spirit. And so Paul's point is, like, you didn't do works to do that. It's all on faith. Question number four. Move through this one quickly. It's verse four. It's a question of experience. Question number four, has your suffering been worthless? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So Paul plants these churches. Christians were being persecuted, and a lot of their persecution was happening at the hands of Jews. So Paul, you remember, formerly uh, in his unsaved life, he was a Jew, name was Saul. He was running around persecuting Christians. And Paul is saying, hey, all of the persecution that's come into these regions of Galatia, man, you trusted Christ? Are you going to throw all that suffering away and say it was worthless? Did you go through it for no reason at all? Question number five. It's a theological question. Question number five is, Found in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So does God give you give to you on the basis of works or on the basis of faith? And, and again, you can see where Paul is going. Like, we don't bring our works to God as currency and say, now, based on the currency that I've given you, uh, I expect something in return. We have nothing to give to God. We come to God simply on the basis of faith. So, this is where Paul goes in verse 6, and it starts to open up the rest of the chapter. But let me just show you how he uses the emphasis on faith here. Again, verse 5, he's asking, Did you receive anything from God on the basis of works, the Spirit, or the works of miracles, By works or by faith? Now look at verse 6. Look at how it begins. Just as. So now we're going to draw a comparison. Just as, and to whom are we comparing? We're comparing to Abraham. Just as Abraham 
believed, by the way, the Greek language for belief and faith is the same one. It's just whether it's a verb or whether it's a noun. So you could say, Abraham faithed, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what is the connection between verse 5 and verse 6? Why does he pull Abraham in here like out of the blue? Well, in verse 5, he's asking the question, did God supply you with these things on the basis of works or on the basis of faith? And then he appeals to Abraham. Abraham, who's living approximately 1,800, 2,000 years previous to this moment, he says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what's going on with Abraham? Back in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham on a dark night. And he says, hey, I want you to come outside. And Abraham is an older man at this time. No children. And he thinks that all of his inheritance and all of his wealth is going to have to be given over to one of his servants named Eleazar. And so he goes outside and God says, hey, I know you're getting old but I want you to look up at the stars right now. How many of those stars are up there? Too many to be numbered. And he says this, I want you to know that your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. You are going to be the father of a nation. And here's Abraham as an old man, having had no children up to this point, being given a promise from God. How is Abraham going to realize or walk in that promise? Is he going to do it by grabbing other slices of the pie, doing works? Okay, God, you've given me this promise, and so now I just got to go through this step, this step, and this step. Not at all. That's not what God wants. He's not impressed with our steps. What he wants is our hearts. Now, what's interesting about Abraham is Abraham was no wallflower either. He's got plenty of strike marks against him as an individual. Twice, he shopped out his wife to kings because he was afraid that they might kill him. And then on another event, when God had given him the promise that he was going to have a son, he's sitting around saying, I'm getting older. And his wife says, yeah, you are, and I am too. Why don't you go in to my servant, Hagar, and have a child with her. Abraham's like, I guess so. Goes, what kind of behavior is that? All right. All of that, you could say, he wasn't no wallflower. And yet, he kept coming back to the promise of God. Even though he might drift or even though he might fail at times, he kept coming back to the promise of God. And he was known in scripture as a man who believed. And on the basis of his belief, God gave him this promise and realized or acted on that promise, and Abraham had a son. And so Paul's point is, hey, look, God's doing a work in you. Did you receive that by, the spirit, or by faith or by works of the law? By faith. Guess what? The same way that Abraham received the promise, by faith. And so we're stepping back from this, and Paul is saying, hey, remember this facet of the diamond, the spirit whom God has given to you in salvation, 
he was given to you as a means or on the basis, I should say, of your faith. So, faith in Jesus provides us with justification, chapter 2. Faith in Jesus provides us with sanctification and the ministry of the Spirit of God in your life. So when you believed in Jesus Christ as the Savior, God gave you his presence. Like his literal presence, his spiritual presence in your life. And every time you see a victory over sin in your life, every time you see a sin put to death, every time you have a right desire for God, an impulse in your heart that says, man, I see the gospel as being so precious and a treasure. Every time you see Jesus Christ as valuable, that's because you've received the Spirit on the basis of faith. What a gift. God has given you the Spirit absolutely free of charge. So let me close with six ways that you can enjoy the blessing of the Spirit in your life. Appreciate the blessing of the Spirit in your life this week. Number one is simply this. Appreciate the work of the Spirit. Appreciate the work of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, and he's talking about from his heart, that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you in your heart this morning are saying, I believe that Jesus is Lord, the reason why you believe that is because God has given you his spirit to open up your eyes to that reality that Jesus is Lord. Appreciate the work of the Spirit. Number two, enjoy the freedom of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here you have the Spirit of God, and here he says that where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. What's the opposite of freedom? Slavery. What have we been enslaved to? Sin. Yet where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom from that sin, so that you and I can be changed from one degree of glory to another along the way. And that's why at year 16, you can look and say, man, God is still giving me freedom over sin, still showing me more and more freedom. Number three, this week, you can walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So inside we have these fleshly, impulsive desires, and we know that that's sin. Are we a slave to that? No, because God has given us his Spirit. And so whatever battles that you are wrestling with sin this week, a Christian can say, I don't have to give in to that because I have the Spirit of God. Number four, 
maintain the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, maintain the unity of the Spirit. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You have a mission this week. The mission is to maintain the unity of the Spirit among the people of God. Number five. Do not grieve the Spirit this week. Ephesians 4, verses 30 to 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How might you grieve the Spirit? Well, with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. So let all of these be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then number six, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. Do not get drunk with wine. Do not be controlled by wine, for that is debauchery. But instead, be filled, controlled with the Spirit. And what does this look like? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and lastly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So folks, I look at all of this. We've been given the Spirit of God on the basis of faith, not works. How can we live by the Spirit? Here are six ways that you can think of this week. Oh, I can realize the Spirit's ministry in my life these six ways. You've been given the Spirit on the basis of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So this week, enjoy the ministry of the Spirit. Even right now, be thankful to God for the Spirit, His Spirit, whom He has placed in you. Let's pray.